today's storytellers, I'm really excited about them. Uh, it's a couple, and there's kind of a, you know, you let these things sort of take shape over time on their own, organically, sort of. And uh, it's the, our first couple sort of presentation. It's Leroy and Caroline Peterson. Uh, two things I want to share about them. Uh, one is they were missionaries for a, for a long time. And two, <clears throat> way more interesting, is I think starting around May or so, they live over at Covenant Shores here on Mercer Island. They go swimming in the lake every single day. Is this true? This is true. So this is already very interesting. Come on up, guys. Tell us your story and read scripture for us. I was 29 when my dear husband Leroy and our two-year-old son Jonathan found ourselves in a foreign country. People were speaking a different language. Children pointing us and saying, Gai Jinda. People bowing instead of shaking hands using inside shoes and outside shoes, shopping in small markets, not knowing the name of the coins, and no grandparents to do babysitting. Yes, we were new covenant missionaries to Japan, and it was August 1964. Moving into a Japanese neighborhood required a ceremony on moving day, while the boxes were still piled high, the family takes a simple gift to each neighbor to introduce themselves. This was part of the excitement as we adjusted to our new mission house. The mission built us a home in Akitsu, a small village with tea hedges, fields of grain, and many vegetable gardens. Being the first American family to live here, we became acquainted with the fish shop, fish shop owner who placed our seafood on a thin piece of wood and wrapped it in newspaper. The milkman who delivered our milk on a bicycle. The vegetable and the fruit vendor placed our order in our basket. The small grocery store had floor-to-ceiling products, and there was Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Oh, how excited we were until we found out they were seasoned with seaweed. <laughs> Leroy went by train to the Christian Academy in Japan where he taught social studies to high school missionary students. As I looked around the village, I saw many children, a neglected shrine, but no church. Would the Lord want us to begin a Sunday school? We had no language training, and they didn't know English, so how would this work out? Well, the Lord had this all prepared ahead of us. One day, a lady knocked on our door. She was a Japanese who lived in our village, and she was a Christian. She had also just finished the child evangelism course, and she was looking for a place to hold children's meetings. Yes, our home was open for this. Mrs. Seki and I met for six months, 
making lessons, printing out sheets with courses and Bible verses. There were no printed Sunday school materials at that time. And the date to begin the Sunday school was set for March 13th. Oh, no, no. On March 12th, I had a hurried trip to the hospital to deliver my second son. So I miss that first Sunday. Announcing the Sunday school began about an hour before the beginning on that first Sunday. The Shindoya-sans were men dressed like clowns, and they beat their drums, and they would call out the invitation to the foreigner's home. About 12 six- to ten-year-olds came that first Sunday. Genesis was the book that we used so that we could tell the children who the Creator was and that Jesus loved them. The children seemed to enjoy coming to Sunday school. They would sit on the floor, singing the choruses, reading the Bible verses, and listening to the story. By Christmas, we had 100 wall-to-wall children. Our baby Joel was baby Jesus that first Christmas. Our walls were decorated like Bethlehem, and many children acted out parts or sang Christmas songs. It was a glorious Christmas. Many years passed. On October 30th, 2016, Leroy and I returned to Japan after 30 years of service. There were taller buildings in Tokyo, improved infrastructure, modern homes, beautifully kept gardens, large shopping centers, many new subways, and excellent train travel. We came for the 50th anniversary of the Shinakitsu Sunday School, which became a church. What started in our home moved to a prefab, then into a new church. Sixty people gathered in this church for the worship service. Following this, we had a reception and many of the people who came had attended the Sunday school. Now living in different parts of Japan and even overseas, they came to relive memories. What a rewarding time this was, meeting them again and hearing how God was working in their lives. Many said that if we hadn't begun the Sunday school, they or their family wouldn't have become Christians. We are blessed. I'll be reading from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. Please use your Bible, or may I suggest maybe Just closing your eyes and listen. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, 
Keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put aside all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. In renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Excited to share this word with you today. Uh, we are uh, talking about Paul's letter to the Colossians, and he's, it's really a study of Christ, who Christ is. But he takes this idea of Christ. You know, and I chose the word Christ rather than Jesus, because Jesus is more sort of referring to the, the human person as he walked. He was Jesus. He was known as Jesus. Jesus is like the name John, one of the most common names at that time. It wasn't a special name. And so there's a sort of a, a mundanity and a sort of fleshiness to the way we call him Jesus. We relate to him that way. But Christ is more cosmic. It's like the, the title of the position rather than the name of the person. You know, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. It's sort of large and heavenly. And what Paul's doing in his letters is he's trying to bring heaven's truth, and translate it to earth. Here is Christ, but this is how Jesus looks here on earth. And the uh, theology category that we're touching on today is called eschatology. It means end times, how the world will end, what happens towards sort of the latter days uh, of human history. And uh, more specifically, Paul is talking about this concept of already and the not yet. It's uh, another way to say realized eschatology. And that's a confusing thing about Christianity is we claim things are already true, and yet they're not true yet here on earth. 
but they are true. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed that things that uh, are going to push human history in a certain direction have already been set in motion. So it's happening. And we begin to taste little bits of it, but because of the guaranteed nature of it, we speak in self-contradictory terms, apparently. So already it's happened, and not yet, but it's not yet happened. It's eschatology and times, but it's realized now. And that's the idea of this title, Raised with Christ. You are already raised with Christ, and yet you're not. Here you are. You haven't died yet. Literally, you haven't been raised with Christ. But maybe in some experiential sense, you've begun to experience new life. There's a kind of higher reality that's translating down to our lower reality. You know, here's our concept or a truth or a reality to come, and it begins to inform the here and now. The Bible says that the victory has already been won, that what Jesus did on the cross finished, completed all that needed to happen. It's going to happen. <clears throat> I have always sort of wrestled with this. I grew up in a Presbyterian setting. Presbyterians are a branch of uh, Protestant Christianity that believes in Reformed theology. And one of the tenets of the Reformed theology is that God has predestined or preordained all things. And I wrestled with that because I sort of, I like being autonomous. I like the volitional part of being a human being. And I don't want my freedom or choice to be threatened by God's choice. I don't want to be a robot sort of just doing what I'm pre-programmed to do. And I didn't understand how if God already determined things, how can he then at the same time hold me accountable to anything? How is anything ever my fault or even my, to my credit when God predetermined everything already? And some of you may have struggled with that too. I got to say, though, recently as I've been aging more, uh, I am more and more appreciative of and totally okay with this apparent contradiction between already and the not yet. And I feel like it doesn't threaten my freedom or choice at all. In fact, it provides me great comfort to know that everything is already done. Uh, the metaphor is sort of like a river. There's a current, and it's a large river, and it's carrying sort of all of human history forward. And there's all this turmoil. There's all this sort of micro uh, activity, micro economies, but the whole economy of God is pushing all of that forward. And you can't fight it, not for very long. It's just going to keep going the way it was always meant to go. And that's really been comforting for me. I'm going to give you a few examples how, of how this has been helpful for me, and I don't feel incongruency about it. One is my house. I live up the hill about a quarter mile uh, south of this church. This is 78th. I live on 79th, just one over. And um, last year, over the bathroom sunroof, there was a leak. And it's just a slow little drip, but, you know, it's... Instant panic, right? Injection of panic into you. And so it was raining pretty hard. And I went up onto the roof during the rain with a bottle of semi-dried silicone that was left over uh, from a kitchen remodel that the con contractors had left behind. And I don't know where the leak is. It's dark. I have a headlamp on. 
And I'm up there just trying to find the leak, first of all, but I can't. There's no way I can know where the leak is, I realize. And the silicone, because it's wet, and also because it's partially drying, it's not sticking very well. So I'm up there sort of just saying prayers and cursing out of you know, both sides of my mouth and getting this squared away. And then uh, this year, we're asking the question, do we replace the roof? Got about four estimates ranging from $9,000 to $15,000, you know? And uh, they all do it kind of different. I can't really compare them. They're not apples to apples, and I'm angsting about this. And the house feels kind of small. The kids are sort of butting up against it as they're getting bigger. And we're going, do we buy? Do we sell? Do we move? What do we do? And we're just angsting about this. And one day it dawned on me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all sort of just moving in a certain direction. And what's going to happen is going to happen. And somehow, it doesn't take away my responsibility. I know I have to make choices, but also this higher reality that there is an end. And what happens to my roof is not going to matter in that sense helps me to be responsible for it in a better way. The anxiety, the fear, the panic. You know, there's a kind of vortex of human existence that I sort of feel pulled out of. And I feel a little bit above it, even though I'm in it. And it helps me to think about it better than if I didn't know that God already has finished the work. I'm not sure why. I'm just experiencing this. This is new to me. I can't really put my finger on it. I'll give you a couple more examples. Uh, one of the things I've been angsting about uh, is the church staff. As you know, there was, there was a lot of changes in the year 2016. And if I'm honest with you, I have been through moments of huge discouragement. It's just bleak sometimes I think about it. And then at other times it feels fine. This is just the way things go right? And then I felt real comfort about how uh, our staff is part of our local church here, Evergreen. Our Evergreen church is part of the covenant, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And the covenant is part of the universal or the Catholic church of Christ, the whole church. And the church that exists today, it's part of a history of churches, and history is moving forward with or without our staff team intact. True or false? True. And somehow, knowing that God's plan is not thwarted by our year 2016 is helping me to feel more responsible and in better shape to address and deal with our staff situation. It's so local and here and now. Another thing I feel unsettled about is the American uh, state right now. I just feel so unsettled. And lots of you have talked to me about this. I've talked to Trump voters and Hillary voters and Bernie supporters and people who voted for Johnson who went independent. Everybody just is in angst about the way America feels and how even our church feels. You know, there's just been harshness. 
There's been divisiveness. We have moralized our own reason while demonizing other people's reason. And I realize how complex politics are. And two people who equally believe in pro-life, for example, translates it very differently, and politically, they vote opposite. But at the core, they both are pro-life. This is what I have learned in talking to many of you. You are so pro-life, and that's why you voted for Hillary. You are so pro-life, that's why you voted for Trump. And there you are, judging and hating each other, feeling alienated, feeling like the other person is an other. And yet, this election, the state of our country now, all the ways that we feel unsettled, none of it actually matters because it's all just being carried, all of it, along this larger force, current. And because it doesn't matter, we know how to be responsible. We better know how to approach the situation. We are emotionally, mentally dialed in a little bit differently as the higher reality informs our lower life here on earth. The future somehow is already here. And that's what actually helps us, pushes us forward. Because the alternative is what? It's the vortex of human existence. Just spiraling, spinning. You yelled, I yell back. You posted, I post also. I mean, we live in a crazy time right now. And we're all sort of tempted to be sucked into the game here on earth only. And yet the Bible says there's a higher perspective. That we are already raised with Christ. I don't know if you believe that. But somehow it's true. Uh, My last example of this is... Jesus' mission to die on the cross. The Bible teaches in no uncertain terms, literally, that before the foundation of the world was laid, before world, the world, this world, the universe existed, God had foreordained for Christ to die for our sins that we hadn't committed yet because we don't exist yet. And yet, at the next breath, in that same sermon, the Apostle Peter turns to those very same people and says, therefore, you are guilty for putting Jesus on the cross. How, when it was foreordained by God, can Peter hold the people responsible? And yet, both are true. There's a kind of invitation to stay in the process, that this process of walking the earth now and bearing the weight of the responsibility of our lives and our world somehow is being used by God to fulfill what already is. That's the teaching that's, uh, that uh, Leroy read for us today, Colossians 3. Another way to say that is this. Higher realities define lower realities. Is this true? Let's see it in the text. I think you're going to 
uh, find it to be true. I don't have it printed, uh, I mean, uh, up on the screens for you because I want you to look at it in your Bible or uh, in the bulletin packet because I want you to mark it up. I want you to see how important and how linearly this is laid out for us. Verse 1 and 2, Therefore, you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That's the higher reality. That's heaven's reality. Right? You're already raised up with Christ. Things are above. And there's an invitation there that from that position we look at earth. With that reality in mind, See through heaven's eyes. See through God's eyes. See through an angel's eyes. But whatever it is, stay a little bit above it and look at it through the lens of heaven's realities. That's what Paul is saying here. Then he explains it even further. In verse 3 to 5, he says, For you have died. Well, you're not dead yet, but he says you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Not all of our parts of lives, of our lives are hidden with Christ, but there it is. He says it as if it already is. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, it's not happened yet, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So Paul is saying this is the higher reality you got to remember that. And when you do, the things that I said have already happened will happen. Right? And then he gets even more uh, into the earth here. Verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. So the reality you believe and know to be true about heaven, what already is, begins to translate and inform the way you live your life here on earth. So you make choices now to be dead to what he calls immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And then he goes back up, which amounts to idolatry, which is not acknowledging God above. Right? So he goes, he starts up, he comes down, and then he goes back up, and then he goes back down again. Verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But they are still living in them partially, which is why Paul is saying this. But he's now speaking about it in the past. And then back to earth. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Again, earthly life impacted by the higher reality, which he goes into now again. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and, uh, Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Higher realities. So Paul goes back and forth between high, low, high, low, high, low. And he's, of course, addressing a form of Gnosticism also that was prevalent in his time. Uh, Gnosticism believed that what you believed was all that mattered. The material world was evil. It was inconsequential. So you could live whichever way you wanted here on earth. You could do whatever you want 
in your body, with your body, to other bodies. It doesn't matter as long as your mind knew, quote-unquote knew, what the truth was. And there was a separation, a divorce between higher reality and lower application of the higher reality. And Paul says, no, actually, actually, if you believe something to be true, then it naturally impacts how you live here on earth. That is to say, what you are doing is what will happen. If you live that way, that's your reality even above. So you can't say, I know I should live a certain way. I mean, I know something to be true, but I don't have to live that way. Now, when I say that, it sounds like the most obvious thing, but we live this way. So many times I can be uh, running and listening to a really great sermon or a podcast, and I have this sort of moment, and my eyes well up with tears. Sometimes I'm uncontrollably weeping because some deep part of me has been touched in some way. I'm experiencing healing from God. Then I burst in through the doors, and I start yelling at my family. You know, you sit here, and you listen to a great sermon. Oh, man, I'm growing so much. And then you go home, and then you're the same person. Because learning, hearing, Getting information is not the same as growth and change and transformation, what the Bible calls sanctification. It's possible to be functional Gnostics even if we don't bear the title. Right? This is a really common mistake. Here's another way to think about it. Information is like seed. And the change in your life is like fruit. But there's a middle layer called soil. The Bible calls this soil. And that determines what happens to the seed. The seed that's planted in you, the Bible says, uh, may not bear fruit. This is the parable of the sowers, the famous one that Jesus told. But Paul is saying, if you really believe in this higher reality of what already is, that you are raised up with Christ, and you keep seeking the things above, the things below naturally change. A way to say that is the true citizens of heaven make the very best citizens of earth. Okay. Uh, one example, one application, and then we close. Uh, this is the example. And I think many of you will be able to uh, understand this, relate to this as well. I grew up in what I would call a blaming culture. And what I mean by that is whatever went wrong, if there was a leak on the roof, if a glass of orange juice was spilled, if a door was left unlocked, if somebody's eye got poked, whatever happened in the Sung family, the first and most relevant question always was, who? did it. It was always some murder mystery or witch hunt. It was the first order of business that had to be settled all the time, no matter what the case, who mattered the most. Who is at fault? Who is to blame? Some of you can relate to that, yeah? Uh, and connected to blame is shame and criticism. And generally, all of that combined to form a negative, defensive, and accusatory culture. I spent decades in this culture. And here's what I realized. So much of education, which is learning and growing, is unlearning. 
I can't learn myself out of a blame culture until I unlearn blame culture. And I've been working 20 plus years on unlearning this blame culture. And today I'm happy to report I'm at a much better place. If you spend an hour with me, you may not experience any kind of blame culture at all coming from me. But that 61st minute, watch out. Life gets real. You know? Over the years, knowing that it's biblically, scientifically, and experientially, uh, God has been working to create a new approach for me. Now I see that blame doesn't actually work. Like, I never knew that. Did you know blaming doesn't work? Did you know that Jesus never blames us? In fact, the Bible teaches that Satan, the prince of darkness himself, his only weapon against us are accusations. That's what Satan does. That's all he has. All this smoke and mirrors. And then it just boils down to telling you lies about you. Accusing you. That's all Satan does. And Jesus actually does the opposite. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What's the opposite of blaming? Taking it. And he invites me in. And here's what I'm learning. That this higher truth, it's illuminating my earthly steps. And now I just don't believe in blaming anymore. It doesn't even make sense. It's counterproductive. I can back it up with a thousand articles written from sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, social economists. Nobody who was a thinking person, truth-seeking person, says blame is, should be in your tool bag. It's really useful. It's complete nonsense, meaning it makes no sense. And so I can put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from my mouth, just as Paul says here. I can do that because the higher reality is that Christ died for me. He didn't kill me. He died for me. I don't have to go kill any of you, it turns out. Here's an application. Here's an application. I, wanna, I know that there are personal ways that you can apply this, but I want to apply it to our political climate, our value system, and our worldviews. Um, here's what the text, is, I believe, is teaching us. It's not just what you think that's important, but it's really how you relate to each other. That's the final test. You look at all of the specifics of the do nots here in this, uh, shall nots in this passage. All of it is relational. Everything is always relational. In fact, Jesus taught that the final test of the existence of God is our love for one another. If you really believe if you really believe, you have to love one another. And you've got to figure out a way to translate your worldview, your values, your politics to love. And whether you're on social media, whether you are talking with your friends, whether you are trying to be a community uh, that gathers together weekly, you've got to figure out how to do the loving thing. 
if it doesn't inform, if your higher truth doesn't translate relationally, it's not working for you. Um, alternatives to this is, uh, you know, uh, a, a popular notion in the corporate world is reframing these days. They want you to reframe everything. It's not, there's other ways to look at it. Be positive. Glass is half full kind of thing. Uh, but Christianity isn't just reframing. It's not just another way to look at it. It's an actual reality that's shedding light. It's not just a different angle on the same reality. It's a whole new different kind of light altogether. And if that's not true for you, I think it's time to ask some questions. But the invitation is here for you to snap out of being sucked into the vortex, play the game that everybody else is playing. There's an invitation for you to live from a different place, to see from a different place. For you have been raised with Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day that you have made. Your word promises us that every day your mercies are new. And it is because Christ has died for us that we can live in the reality that your mercies are available to us. There is no condemnation in Christ, not towards us and not through us. So God, I pray for you to forgive us for the ways that we have been unloving and not allowing heaven's realities to inform our day-to-day -day life. And we ask you to lift us up, help us to see through Christ's eyes as we learn to love, serve, and give. In Jesus' name, amen.